going to be honest, Romans 11 is a difficult chapter. In fact, this is the third chapter in a row that has been very difficult, filled with dense argumentation and twists and turns within the argument, quotations of scripture packed one on top of the other, almost too many to count. And I say all that to say, if you've been reading along for the past three chapters and you're struggling to understand exactly what Paul is getting at, just know that you're not alone. Paul isn't always easy to understand. In fact, even the other apostles sometimes had a difficult time understanding everything he was saying. As the apostle Peter says in one of his own letters, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Even Peter knew that Paul was sometimes hard to understand. So, like I said, don't get discouraged. But if we're going to understand what Paul's getting at in Romans 11, if we're going to grasp his central point, then it's important to remember what we've been talking about in these last couple sessions. Because these three chapters, Romans 10, 9, 10, and 11, are in reality one long section within this letter. They're all working together to try to, to offer an answer to that pressing question Paul raised back at the beginning of chapter 9, that question of whether or not God's word to the people of Israel had failed. And this is an important question, not just for Jews, but for Christians as well. For, as Charles Cranfield says, if the truth is that God's purpose with Israel has been frustrated, then what sort of a basis for Christian hope is God's purpose? And if God's love for Israel has ceased, what reliance can be placed on Paul's conviction that nothing can separate us in the church from God's love in Christ? In chapter 9, Paul answered this question by drawing attention to the unfailing love of God. In the story of Israel and in the story of our own lives, what matters isn't how lovable a people we are, but how God chooses to set his love upon a people. Then in chapter 10, he pointed out that what God was doing in Christ isn't a departure from how he treated Israel, but rather a fulfillment of what Moses himself had promised all those years ago. But it's clear that Paul's not done yet. In this chapter, he continues to explain the claim that he made in chapter 9, verse 6. That claim about how the word of God hasn't failed. And to do that, he focuses his attention on two questions. First, he asks, has God really rejected his chosen people? And second, if not, how do we explain Jewish unbelief? How does this fit into God's plan and purpose for Israel? Let's start with that first question. In the very first verse of chapter 11, Paul poses this question very bluntly. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, Paul's immediate and unequivocal answer to this question is, of course, no. No, it's not true that God has rejected his chosen people of Israel. In the first 
evidence that he provides for that answer is himself. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, why would God call a Jewish man like Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles if he had rejected Israel? Obviously, not all of Israel is responding in unbelief to the gift of the Messiah. What's more, it's clear from other times in Israel's history that even when a large portion of the people seem to be abandoning their God, this doesn't mean that God has abandoned or rejected them. Now, to illustrate that point, Paul refers to a story from the Old Testament, the story of the prophet Elijah that's found in 1 Kings chapter 19. You might remember it. It's a story about a time when not only the king and queen of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel, But a great many of the people had actively rejected God and chosen to worship false gods instead. And the prophet Elijah is being hunted by the queen and he flees to the wilderness. And in a moment of despair, he tells God that that he and he alone of all Israel has remained faithful. But God corrects him and says, no, Elijah, Elijah is not the only one. I have kept for myself, God says, 7,000 men in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then Paul quotes, Paul quotes God's response to Elijah. And then he concludes, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I I think that the ancient church father, John Chrysostom, does a good job at summarizing the point Paul's making here. Paul is saying something like this, God did not cast off his people. If God had cast them off, God would not accept any of them, but God accepted some, so he did not cast them off. Now, that may not seem like an entirely satisfactory answer, but there's profound comfort in what Paul is saying here. In the days of Elijah, the prophet looked around and saw no visible signs of loyalty or faithfulness to God. He saw Israel's abandonment of God, and he thought it was so complete that Elijah came to think he was the very last faithful Israelite. And with his death, in essence, would come the death of God's history with his people. But God tells Elijah that though he cannot see it, God himself has preserved a large remnant. 7,000 is the number he gives. But that may simply be a symbolic way of saying a very large multitude of people. And in that, there is a comfort for all of us. For as John Calvin comments, since the grace of God prevails so greatly, even in the most deplorable circumstances, do not let us lightly assign to the devil all those whose godliness we do not see. We should at the same time also have this truth stamped deeply within us that however ungodliness may abound in every part of the world and fearful confusion press us on all sides, yet the salvation of many remains secure under the seal of God. In other words, no matter how poorly things may seem to be going for the people of God, No matter how faithless they may appear at any moment, let us never forget 
that God does not reject his people. He is always at work in ways far beyond what we can see. Has God rejected his people? No, Paul says. No matter what things may look like to us, rest assured that God has preserved a remnant for himself. But that doesn't really answer the second question that I mentioned. If God hasn't rejected Israel, then why does it seem that so many of them, at least in Paul's day, why does it seem that so many of them are are rejecting the gift of the crucified and risen Messiah? How exactly does this Jewish unbelief factor into God's purposes and plans for his people? In response to that question, Paul draws upon the image of an olive tree. Uh, The people of Israel, he says, are like a tree planted and cared for by God. And it seems that in his own day, some of the branches of the tree have been cut off and others, all those Greek-speaking non-Jewish Christians, others are being grafted onto the tree. But, and here he seems to be addressing those Gentile Christians directly, maybe the Gentile members of the Roman church. But don't think that just because you have been grafted in, that God has somehow abandoned or rejected the tree itself and chosen you as a new tree to take its place. God is the one who chose Israel. He is the one who planted and cultivated her as a people. And he isn't finished with her. In fact, there's a purpose at work in what he's doing, a purpose that Paul describes as a mystery. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Uh, These verses have generated an enormous amount of speculation. What exactly is Paul talking about here? There are a wide variety of interpretations. One scholar summarizes some of these different interpretations as following. Some believe that phrase means that one day the nation of Israel itself will be reinstituted and every member thereof will be a believer in God through Jesus Christ. Others believe that phrase, all Israel would be saved, refers to a future generation when before the end God will bring a tremendous influx of the Jewish people into his kingdom believing in Christ. Others believe that this verse simply states that God will continue to deal with the people of Israel generation after generation, and that once we have gotten to the end of time, we will look back and we will see this great cumulative work that God has done amongst his ancient people in all generations. The truth is, Paul doesn't really elaborate and explain what he means by this phrase. He simply says that, While it may seem that God has somehow abandoned his people and started over, that's not so. God hasn't rejected Israel. He is still committed to them. And in the end, we will see that what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah will come to pass. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from his people Israel, and he will fulfill his covenant with them by taking away their sins. For, as Paul says in verse 28, they are his chosen people. God chose to bind himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. 
and he remains committed to that bond. For, as Paul goes on to say, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What are you and I supposed to do with all of this? Uh, No doubt you still have many questions about what exactly Paul is getting at with this talk of grafting and regrafting and with all Israel being saved. I'll be honest, as I've read and studied this chapter, I continue to have questions myself. But I'm not sure that the proper response to Romans 11 is to get bogged down in questions. For the main thrust of what Paul's saying is pretty clear. And so are its implications for us. I see three implications in this chapter for us. First, as I mentioned already, this chapter, what Paul says here, ought to be a source of comfort and consolation. For no matter how dire things may seem, no matter how weak or faithless the condition of God's people may appear, the hope of our salvation lies not in the amount of conversions that we can witness or the sincerity of faith or godly behavior that we see around us, but in the absolute and unwavering determination of God to be the deliverer of his people. Paul lamented the unbelief of his Jewish brethren, and Elijah Elijah was tempted to despair. But both were reminded that God is in the business of showing mercy, and he has not given up on his people. And in that, we too should take comfort. And that's the first implication of Romans 11. And the second, especially for non-Jewish Christians, ought to be one of humility and gratitude. Really, if there's anything that this entire letter ought to engender in us, it's probably humility and gratitude. For the message of Paul all throughout this book has been that we didn't deserve salvation, nor have we done anything to earn it. The salvation we have received in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, that salvation is simply and only a gift. And because of that, we must be very careful not to become proud or presumptuous about it. It is a great tragedy that in various periods of church history, Christians have treated their Jewish neighbors and other non-Christian neighbors with contempt, hostility, and occasionally even violence. And one reason for that has been that some Christians have taken pride in their position as God's people. They have made the same mistake that that some of the Israelites did, allowing themselves to think that God's grace to them is somehow based on their own moral or ethnic superiority as a people. And that they've therefore begun to look down on the non-Christians around them. Now, Paul warns against this attitude very specifically in Romans chapter 11 when he's using that metaphor of a wild olive tree that has branches grafted in. Remember, he says, all you non-Jewish Christians, you're not the tree. You've just been given the gift of being joined to it. And remember how God responded to the original branches of that tree when they became proud and presumptuous. And they began to to put trust 
and faith in their own superiority rather than the mercy of God. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. That's something we must never forget. Being a Christian has nothing to do with our moral or intellectual or cultural superiority. To be a Christian is only and always to be someone whose present and whose future life are experienced as a pure gift. And for that reason, our proper response must always be one of humility and gratitude. That's the second implication of this chapter. The third implication, I think, is made clear in the final four verses. And remember, as I've already said, Paul describes his comments about God's plan for the salvation of Israel. He describes it as a mystery. And he doesn't then go on to engage in a lot of further speculation, or he doesn't answer a lot of the questions that we may want him to answer. Instead, he responds in what seems to be the only way that he knows how. He responds by expressing the overwhelming wonder and astonishment that he feels as he reflects on the mystery of God's saving righteousness. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For 11 chapters now, Paul has been slowly unpacking the good news, as he put it at the very beginning of this letter, the good news of the righteousness of God, the news of how God refused to abandon a world gone wrong, of how God has committed himself to set things right, of how he took on sin and death to do so, of how he liberated humanity from its bondage and granted them freedom as his own children through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now for the past three chapters, he's, Paul's been explaining how God's promises to Israel have not failed, how God's plan throughout history has consistently been the gracious salvation of his people, and how in a way beyond our understanding, he is still at work among a remnant in ways we cannot see. And now all that Paul can do in response is to express his utter astonishment at the wisdom and the goodness of God. Recently, I heard a theologian, a Catholic theologian, say that the heart of Christian existence, what it fundamentally means to be a Christian, is the experience of being overwhelmed. The experience of being overwhelmed with the glory of God. And sin, he said, is fundamentally the opposite, being underwhelmed by the glory of God. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that, and I think that's precisely what we see Paul doing here. He is simply overwhelmed with the glory of God. And if we believe what Paul's been telling us, then we ought to be as well. <laughs>